Hello and welcome to Australian Gothic, a podcast about cursed Australiana. I'm Lucas, an old man playing two-up who has started cackling at you. And joining me is my co-host Josie, an old man playing two-up who has started cackling at you. Hi Josie. Ha ha ha. Hello. <laughs> How you going? Good, good. Uh, we sure do look like the Urukai from Lord of the Rings. We sure do. Lucas, you got me to watch a movie. I uh, don't know if you know this about me, but I am known for refusing to watch anything when people suggest it to me. So this has been mm-hmm. a bit of um, personal growth and character development on my part. Um, I actually sat down and watched the film that you recommended, and I'm here to talk about it. Wow, okay. And that film is uh, the Australian classic, uh, long thought for a long time to be long lost, um, Wake and Fright. Uh, a lot of people are excited for us to talk about this. So, uh, Josie, what were your initial feelings about Wake and Fright? Okay, so, um, first off, when you... Because you've brought up Wake and Fright a few times, just in conversation. And I'm like, haha, yeah, man. And I'm like... <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I've never heard of this film in my entire life. And I was so prepared to be like, Lucas? So, like, you know how everyone has a few things in their life that they just take for granted as being like a common experience Mm -hmm. and that it's like transferable. And then there's a point in life where you're like, Oh, that's not a regular thing. Um, So I assumed that wake in fright was like your version, like either Mm -hmm. your version of this, like very popular film that I had somehow missed or this was something that was very important to you and you maybe thought it was like a universal experience but you less than two minutes before recording this fucking podcast dropped the bomb on me that it was lost oh, oh, a look, lost t- film uh, to to be clear I believe to the best of my knowledge it was available in one form or another but like incomplete censored missing scenes um, of low quality um, We'll get into that in the production stuff, but yeah, for the longest time, like the definitive cut of this film uh, was thought lost for ages. And this is because uh, it was not a big hit initially. Like it was a big hit in the art house set, but like in Australia and certainly in like, you know, domestic cinema sets, like, no, it was not a huge hit. So it was kind of almost, it was almost lost. Fucking hell. That's so exciting. Cause like, you know, I've visited like the whole lost media subreddit like years ago but i didn't know until now that i watched something that was like missing media but yeah so uh wake and fright available on stan in australia i streamed it and i was like okay 1970 that's older than i thought like i'm coming into this with nothing and i watched this movie and it opens with the most desolate, flat fucking outback scene. You know, it's starting to finally be cold in Brisbane. And suddenly my I feel like I am heating up. Like, it, the opening scene is just this crackling heat. And mm-hmm. yeah, kind of opens up onto just this outback classroom. I had no fucking clue what was happening. But it ended up being this film... I'm still kind of processing it, but it, uh, I, I think I, I said this on the Twitter, but I have never experienced a film where the main villain was the specter of hegemonic masculinity. <laughs> like there were two things that like haunted me through this film and it was the, the feeling of being stuck, just the idea of being stuck in this remote place where I'm an outsider and a constant thing throughout this film is how the the main character John Grant basically throughout the entire film his his character and his masculinity is being sized up as being sized up in a way that is so familiar to me like something I witnessed you know around me as a child but then also you know my my beautiful sensitive husband Robert his masculinity doesn't align with the type of like 
rural crass masculinity shown in in this film so i guess i'll pass it to you because you might be better at describing what unfolds in the film and then i can kind of interject sure necessary if you like sure sure but you touch on a couple of things that we will absolutely get into later and yeah like i'm gonna try and not overuse the word visceral but this film has a texture also, sorry, um, for everyone who doesn't know, I work in filmmaking, so I'm going to try and not be like a massive wanker this whole time when I <laughs> talk about like cinematography and stuff. Yeah, sorry. But uh, yeah, it opens with this like really, you know, desolate 360 shot of the scenery, which, which is at once beautiful, but also like, you know, very dry. And it's like there's two buildings in this town, a school and a pub hotel. And that's about it. Uh, oh, sorry, on the train tracks. And uh, yeah, throughout the whole film, like you get a sense of how like sweaty everything is, how dusty everything is. Uh, mm. They ha- this was a film that made use of like flies, like you know releasing, oh, you know, gr- you know having like a fly wrangler to like add more flies to the shot. Oh, what we're actually like in filming it added flies. Yeah, yeah. All the outdoor scenes were filmed at Broken Hill and all of the indoor scenes were filmed at a studio in Sydney. So they would have had to get someone to bring in like specially raised flies to, you know, create create the texture of a pub in the middle of like buttfuck nowhere. Holy I try not to say shit. that too dismissively. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so- yeah. No, but it is literally like you sorry okay for international listeners but fuck nowhere um, <laughs> is 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 a is a town uh that is you just yeah it's i thought it was an american expression i it i've heard it be. in american media yeah cuz oh, it's, a, it's i go. think it's a yeah. deliverance joke you oh. know it's, it's it's where they you know the hillbillies like do sodomy and shit like that like i thought oh, that's my understanding ooh, of it oh I, that's kind of yucky i didn't realize I, that I know, you just I, ruined me saying but fuck nowhere so, yeah yeah oh, i think man. but i think it's an explicit deliverance joke so i don't know as long as you're invoking deliverance uh, i don't know don't quote me on that <laughs> oh no see i was just saying like i thought it was just like yeah i never thought about the origins like, of that okay that, yeah, there's we nothing can out circle there back to that in our yeah. slang episode maybe Sorry, are you happy for me to talk more uh, briefly on, like, the production of the film? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, shot in about the 1970s. Um, some key facts of the production. It was the first film to feature Jack Thompson, who was considered, like, now considered more of, like, a dad figure, but as a legendary Australian actor and was, like, the go-to guy for, like, a manly man. You know, you want a sheep shearer. You want, like, an army captain. Uh, he was in The Sum of Us. He was in Sunday Too Far Away. He's been in basically mm. throw a rock in an Australian film. It's got Jack Thompson in it. Um, it was the last film of a guy with the best name I've ever heard, Chips Rafferty. Who... Oh my gosh, I that, that, that is one of my notes. I was like, who the fuck is Chips Rafferty? This is some sort of <laughs> Mad Max sounding motherfucker. Is my exact note. He, for American listeners, Chips Rafferty, as far as I can tell, was kind of an Australian esque John Wayne. He was kind of like a pinup for like you know old steadfast masculinity. Uh, he's very tall. He plays uh, the cop Jock Crawford in this film. Oh, uh, old men okay. do be called Jock. Um, <laughs> his his presence in the film is fantastic. He is simultaneously, like, he embodies the aggressive hospitality that kind of attacks the main character, John Grant, the whole time, like, constantly, like, pestering him, like, you know, come on, let's get a beer. Come on, have a beer. Like, finish your beer. I'm getting you another one. Yes. And is really, Regardless like... Regardless of the wishes of John Grant. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, this says, you know, this says a deep amount about Australian culture. Um, so sorry, um, the film was a American Australian co-production. Uh, the director, Ted Kotcheff is Canadian. Uh, he did the first Rambo movie. He did Weekend at hmm. Bernie's. Uh, he's a fascinating guy. The film when it came out in Australia was hated. Uh, it was no. not a commercial oh. success. Um, it, you know, we will get into this a little bit later. Um, there are, you know, from what I can see of my reports there were cinemas that were left in stunned silence um there were people saying like that's not us about the movie um it was kind of groundbreaking in a few ways for like its raw depiction of hegemonic masculinity and like pub culture and drinking Mm -hmm. culture in australia Mm -hmm. according to jack thompson in one of the interviews which i'll put in the notes like which is um, this was sort of like 2011 when the film was uncovered and re-released i know i said this in the hey hey it's saturday episode and i cut it out just because it didn't really fit um according to jack thompson this was one of the first movies to really feature people speaking in a broad Australian accent. 
Um, really? A lot of the time, yeah, a lot of the time, people in Australian movies did like a transatlantic accent, basically, where it yeah. was a little bit English. And yeah, the further you go back, um, if you in Australian media, if you heard someone speaking in a broad Australian accent, they were like hillbillies. They, the implication is that they were from, you know, they were from the sticks. They were dumb. And this is one of the first movies to be like no no metropolitan australians speak like this as well like this is this is how we talk this is how we look <laughs> so the main character john grant so so he's basically he's the uh, the outsider he is a school teacher and he's like this you know city slicker who works for the department of education and in in australia and this still exists in some capacity like you can opt to have like a relatively stable job with the state if you agree to like go to rural postings and stuff and so he's just finished up the school term uh it's the last day of school and he's trying to head back to sydney um to see his girlfriend and spend six weeks with his girlfriend um and he has to make a pit stop in the town of yabba but the reason i bring that up is because in relation to the accent thing i did google who the main actor was and I was surprised to see that he was British Mm -hmm. and it's interesting that you bring that up because he does have a very different accent to everyone else but I sort of took that as being the traditional you know what you would call our equivalent of a transatlantic accent well I think it's a little bit British well I think he is the character is actually meant to be British because there is a point in the film where he is talking about god now now you've thrown me for one I can't tell if he's meant to be is he meant to be just like a Sydney guy? I no, I think he, I think he mentions going back to Britain. So like, I I don't think that he's explicitly Australian. But I, in my watching, until I kind of read that he was British anyway, I just, what I'm saying is like, I kind of, you can have someone who is being explicitly British in that film, and I just took it to be old timey Australian accent, if that makes sense. Like. <laughs> No, good Does call. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, I, I didn't realise, like, that was one of, the, like, the first film that really embraced how we talk. And, mm. you know, I would really love to hear if any of our international listeners especially end up watching this film and hearing your thoughts about it because I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll touch on this as well um, whenever it comes up. But I watched the first 20 minutes by myself and then last night I came home and... My husband Robert sat down with me as I put it on and he sat and watched it with me and neither of us could could move away from this film and we both were having we were both freaked the fuck out of it. We both agreed that yeah. we love the film and we never want to watch it again. <laughs> um but he yep. was saying something that he commented on that did not even register me and I think this speaks more to my own experience with it is I was bringing up all the themes that made me uncomfortable. And then he said, oh, and all the drinking. And I said, huh? Um, so for <laughs> listeners, my dad is a huge alcoholic. He Same. And so I was brought up around people drinking that much alcohol. And it did not register to me that for people who maybe didn't grow up around alcoholics, yeah, that is really disordered drinking. And, but I think it is kind of fucked up how I could watch that film and be like, this is normal. And then someone else watches that film and is like, oh yeah, Australia has a drinking problem. <laughs> yeah, and this was like one of the first movies to really like hold up a lens, hold up a mirror to that and really make people freak out. Because um, So this movie also came out at the start of uh, a film movement uh, that is ultimately called Australian New Wave or Ausploitation. And that's where we get so many great Australian films, so many people's careers, you know, like ranging from like classic films like, you know, Sam Neill's My Perfect Career through to Mad Max. And, mm. uh, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll do Mad Max at some point. Um, you know, we're definitely doing Alvin Purple, though. Google that. <laughs> I've never I've never heard of this in my life. I, again, like I've kind of avoided Australian cinema for similar reasons that I've avoided. Um, yeah, like Australian fiction like um literary fiction and stuff is because sometimes the themes are too close to home which i suspect is maybe why uh this movie wasn't received very well because something about this film everyone seems like the villain yet 
I don't think anyone did anything explicitly wrong in the whole film. Like, even the the kangaroo hunting scene, I don't know... Obviously, it's. I feel like <laughs> it's arguably morally wrong, but I don't think that anyone did any sort of... Anything that you would would say would fit in a horror film, yet it was objectively a horror film. There's, yeah, so if it's you wanna... funny that this is called a horror film because there is no supernatural presence. Um, there's no monster. There's no serial killer or anything like that. It's just a incredibly nerve-wracking, upsetting film. That scene in particular, I I tried to think about it because like the scene where okay, so to quickly summarize the plot, um, technically this is a Christmas movie. Wake and Fright is a Christmas what? movie. You can watch it at Christmas. Um, so uh. John Grant uh, stops off at Banyandaba or, or the Yabba, as it's called by the locals. Uh, the locals all seem to think it's the greatest place on earth. It's a mining town kind of based on Broken Hill. To quote another Australian movie, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, everyone goes underground and blows things up all day, then comes back up and drinks really hard all night. <laughs> so it is, a, it is an awful place. All there is to do is like just sink piss really hard and gamble and play two up. Uh, sorry, I may potentially alienate my fellow country people. Um, two up looks like shit. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm putting this out there. I do not oh, like yeah, two no. up. I don't like complex rules in a game, but that's too few rules. <laughs> I get that if you were at Gallipoli and you were like surrounded by mud and like rotting corpses and stuff like that, it's just like, yeah, fucking any distraction. Let's play the game where you try to flip two coins and get like two heads or two tails and you gamble. Um, but yeah, Ooh. the idea of the idea of doing that. Is that where Two Up was created? Yeah, apparently that that's why people do it for Anzac Day. It was like played by the troops because there was like fuck all what fuck else were you meant to do? Oh, that's interesting because John Grant, he gets towed around, gets plied with alcohol by like the local police guy, and then he gets introduced to this back room of a pub where they're playing two up and all this gambling happens. And sort of midway in that point, John Grant meets I, I don't remember his name. Uh, um, Doc Titan. Yes. I'll call him the Doc. Played by Donald Pleasance. Oh, okay. I don't know who that is. Oh, okay. Uh, he was in the Halloween movies. He's like the psychiatrist who's trying to stop Michael Myers. Uh, he's oh, shit. In, he's the president from Escape from New York. Uh, probably his <laughs> most famous role is he's Blofeld in I Think You Only Live Twice. And he... He was the direct visual inspiration for Dr. Evil from the Austin Powers movies. Like the, no. uh, the Nehru collar suit, the white Persian cat, the fencing scar. Like he is, he is sort of the iconic image of, you know, Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Oh, wow. Okay. And I did here, not know that. Yeah, English actor here doing like a, a fucking flawless Australian accent. I was like blown oh. away when I kept remembering like, oh, this dude's British. What the fuck? He nailed it. I had no idea. This is the first time learning about this because he was fucking flawless. He sounded like a, a learned Australian. Yeah. Um, like you could tell. So he, in the plot, you find out that he is a doctor of medicine and basically ended up stuck at the Yabba because he drank a lot and gambled and whatever. Yeah, and really embraced the life and decided, like, I'm going to live as a squatter and eat kangaroo and just, like, people can pay me with beer. Yeah, yeah. And I I brought this up because when you first meet the doc, he says this quote. I left myself a voice memo, so I, I'm not going to play it right now. But he says, basically, he was just saying that, you know, if you live in hell anyway, like, you may as well enjoy it. And now knowing that Two Up was literally <laughs> created in the midst of Hell on Earth in, you know, Gallipoli, surrounded by shit and piss and rotting corpses, like that, I think that that adds an element to it. I didn't know that history. All the little devils are proud of hell. Do you mean... You don't think the Yabba is the greatest little place on earth? Could be worse. How? Supply of beer could run out. Yes. Very gripping scene. You sort of then... John Grant, John Grant is at this pub. He has this really fucking dry-looking, yet familiar-looking steak sandwich. Uh, steak and eggs. <laughs> steak and eggs. The eggs are fried to shit. Which, again, familiar. Steak looks charcoal, like it's... 
Yeah, and then... This is sold to him as, like, the best steak in Bundyanyabar, like, it's... It cost a dollar, which I did. I meant to Google inflation, but, you know, didn't do it. He's sitting at this table and he still thinks he's too hot for the Yabba and sort of is, you know, letting his classism show. Mm-hmm. But then he gets drawn back into two-up and learns very quickly how to pick up the rules, which I guess is one of the things about two-up and is experiencing the thrill of quadrupling his money and he's like okay just one more bet one more bet and i if i win this then i get to stop teaching i can like pay um, off his degree is that what it's meant to be like possibly mm. yeah so you kind of see him being dragged down into what could easily become an addiction to gambling which you know i think i've referenced maybe already in this show but like um yeah certainly certainly familiar with that um we've referenced and we will cover it in a late at a later date but gambling in australia is a huge problem and it is something that we've normalized so much because it happens alongside our drinking culture which again is really severe mm-hmm so I can, I'm just trying to put myself in the headspace of someone watching this film in 1970 and seeing alcoholism and gambling being brought up and it being very obviously this kind of bleak and depraved act. Um, yeah, being sort of mirrored back at you and I could imagine how upsetting that would be. Yeah, just to be clear as well, like if you haven't watched this film, um, the two-up scene, it's a crowd of dudes. As I joked about in the intro, everyone looks like an orc. They're all like hooting and just like, ah, get out of the way, I'm angry. Like everyone is sweaty, mm. everyone is covered in flies, everyone is decrepit. Um, this is kind of why this is a seminal work of Australian Gothic fiction is that you know, at this point, Australia is still a very young country, but, like, everything, the people, the buildings, are already, like, falling apart and, like, you know, ugly to behold. They're made out of tin, and everything is so dusty and unkempt. And that's not an exaggeration either. Like, obviously, it's not like that everywhere, but even where we live in Brisbane, (laughs) one of my friends who is German, when he came over here, he's like, these are the coldest winters I've ever had because you you live in glorified shacks and we looked at our windows not in where we are now but at the time we were living in like an older home and we have fucking louvers like they're just little slats of plastic that if you get them to bend at the same way at the same time then maybe they'll block some air out but like you can literally see the the sun shining through our floorboards in the morning Australia is not built very well, guys. <laughs> no, no. And man, if I never have to see slatted windows again, like, fuck me. They're the worst. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, everything in this town is like falling apart. And uh, like there is evidence. One thing that's interesting about this film is like how it's all taking place, like as close to like the outback as possible. And everything is like framed as very inhospitable and bleak. The crumbling castles of like Gothic literature are replaced with like this oppressive daylight horror. And that's something I feel complicated about because I know people have lived here thousands and thousands and thousands of years and have lived in those environments. And I believe the novel uh, Dark Emu goes into like, no, people were living in the deserts and thriving. And, you know, the desert is itself alive. And, you know, you see the desert after rain and it's beautiful. But yeah, like there are times where it like looks arid and very uninviting. So it's a kind of telling that all these Australian films take place in these like crumbling Western settlements that like, seen perpetually on the verge of collapse well it's kind of like when you do think about it in that sense you know in the yabba so there are these corrugated iron buildings but you'll often see at least i guess what is probably the town hall or whatever the main building is oh yes it is this gorgeous like i would say victorian i don't actually know victorian yeah probably victorian gorgeous stone building or whatever and the reason that the bush, you know, the outback is so inhospitable is because we tried to fucking build Victorian settlements <laughs> in a place, in somewhere that is not England. Like, it, that's, not, that's not how you can live here. And yeah. I think that also extends into... So one of my notes 
was that Wake and Fright is like Australia's grim answer to the hangover in some <laughs> sense. But also it will it won't make you laugh. <laughs> like it is just fucking grim. No, no. And also that same building you were talking about, that gorgeous sandstone building, is arguably part of the most scary shot in that film. Like arguably the horror movie oh. the horror movie reveal. It's it's Wake and Fright's version of Jaws coming out of the water and like the chest burst scene from Alien. Like when you see that building at that one scene, it's just like, oh! Sort of to bring us forward into the movie a bit more, John Grant's had his first night. He has basically lost all his money at two up. He wakes up. He's missed his flight to Sydney the next day. So he's stuck in the Yabba. And then basically a series of events take him around to different spots around town and with a group of people that he's forced to befriend because at every turn that he tries to sort of separate himself and get himself back on, you know, I guess the straight and narrow over the course of these few days, the very hostile and unwavering hospitality that a certain type of like Australian man has gives him no choice. I wrote down, I was like a jovial masculinity all throughout this movie that's menacing and hostile sizing other men up constantly. So he ends up one evening going out with a bunch of guys and they go kangaroo hunting. And this scene bothered me for many reasons. Mm. So one of our um, friend of the show commented on my Twitter post and made a comment about how you can... Wake and Fright is a great movie. You can show it to a bunch of, like students and they could do any sort of I guess literary reading of it and I don't know what this is but I'm not I don't know anything about film but the thing that really shocked me was the violence and the wastefulness of the kangaroo scene so I I, I want to know if you wouldn't mind taking us through the kangaroo hunting scene yeah sure so uh sorry he meets up so just to catch up on the plot he meets up yeah, with this yeah. like very jovially american guy called al times who was just like oh come have a beer with me and he's just like i don't have any money it's just like and then he's very aggressively like i don't care i'm you're gonna have a beer with me and that and it's very clear that like these people are willing to pay his way as long as he hangs out they will keep him in beer and housing and feed him like he will have to live in a shack with like the scary doc titan but uh he will be he will have a place to stay he meets up with uh al's daughter who is like this kind of weird character who we may talk about at some point who like tries and fails to seduce him uh he meets a uh, jack thompson's character dick and his friend joe uh doc tyden shows up they form this little posse and they go binge drinking they have this like horrible night where they drink beer and the next day john wakes up in doc tyden's shack uh doc tyden is a hot couch guy and explains his philosophy that like oh no one needs to pay me money or anything like that like they can just pay me beer and i'll do like you know unlicensed medical stuff for them uh by the way we've been invited to go kangaroo hunting with uh dick and joe and they show up in the most mad max looking car this like beat up american hot rod and uh they just go out in the desert to commit mass death mm. yeah eh, it, yeah you know there's one scene which i think is just cleverly shot is meant to imply they've like purposely run down a kangaroo with uh so they go on this kangaroo hunt and they're not having any luck because it's like broad daylight kangaroos are very evasive very slippery they manage to like hit one with their car then they retire at a pub to uh drink more beer they've been drinking this whole time and the guy at the motel tells them like oh you know the trick to killing kangaroos is that you need to blind them with basically like a floodlight so you know you've got a floodlight in your car go out at night blind them hypnotize them to lights and then you've got like an easy shot and blinding lights in this film really are a motif um i was meant to talk about before during the two-up scene when john really starts to lose the two-up scene he tosses the coins in the air and then he stares into like the hanging light fixture which like you know completely whites out the film and you know only to see that he's like and then it like cuts to like the next day when he's like lost all his money so, you know, the idea of being blind... And there are many scenes where he looks out windows and is blinded by, like, the bright Australian sun. So that idea of being, like, hypnotised and destroyed is really, like, a motif in the film. Yeah. The the kangaroos... That was some, like... Um, what's it called? What was that series of films? It was something of death. It was this, like, exploitation series. Um, 
Uh, Mondo Faces of Death. Films like Shocking. Okay, yes, At, yes. Yeah, Faces of Death, and um, where, from my understanding, at least some, if not all, of like the animal-related scenes are real. Yeah, in Wake in Fright, the hunting of the kangaroos is is real. Yeah, this was a big controversial part of the film. And also what you were talking about there is uh, also kind of known as Mondo Cinema. It was Italian in origin. And uh, it was really like, you know, hey, oh, we're going to go to Thailand and we're going to show like, you know, religious rituals that look very, you know, you know, visceral and, you know, maybe upsetting to audiences, you know, purposely making films that are going to like shock people. And then realizing like, oh, if we want to do a like, jungle horror film where like you know we pay you know polynesian extras to like munch on raw meat and imply they're cannibals like we can Jesus. do that as well and uh probably one of the most horrible famous ones is the film cannibal holocaust which features uh which was banned because people thought like oh no this was an actual snuff film it was film. real that's right yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh the main thing that people are most upset about now is the amount of animals that are killed on screen mm-hmm. uh like turtles a pig like you know all four all to make a grand point about violence, but even the director is just like, yeah, I wouldn't do that again. Um, the kangaroo hunting scene, uh, Ted Kotcheff was a vegan at the time, is like a point no. that keeps coming up. And yeah, he was just like, oh, is there a way we can do this? Okay, let's go along with like a licensed, you know, kangaroo hunt. Kangaroo hunts are still performed every now and then because like kangaroos break into farms and eat, you know, agricultural, you know, eat crops and stuff like that. Don't know how I feel about that, but um, mm. yeah. So this, the footage we see of the kangaroo hunt is equal parts um, a shoot where the actors are actually like playing on a set and they're like you know pretending to shoot, and then actual footage of like kangaroos being shot. So like big content warning. I did warn you about this scene, but it sounds like you you did have a visceral reaction to this. Yeah, I I didn't. I knew it was something like I could see it and. I didn't watch, like, my eyes weren't glued to the screen. I just took in as much as I could. But even just the sounds and the lo- like the blinding light, um, so the way it's shot too, I think even with the bit, like, me trying to avert my eyes away from the gore, it was still very... Difficult affecting. to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Something just occurred to me. So I believe maybe by this point already earlier in that day in the movie is is that we know that doc eats this fucking disgusting looking slop literal slop he, um made he of calls it grub <laughs> yeah it, yeah grub slop it is the worst thing i've ever seen in my fucking life so we know that you can eat kangaroo and for our international listeners you absolutely can eat kangaroo it's some really good lean meat and is relatively environmentally friendly especially because of kangaroos they can become pests in terms of like overbreeding i believe yeah yeah but there's also this dynamic that i mean sorry i'm just getting a lot of thoughts coming at once where it's like they leave i believe they take the testicles of the kangaroos of the male kangaroos but then they leave these entire animals there they're not they're hunting for joy they're not hunting for food, even though we know you can eat kangaroos. And it's just like, feels very wasteful. I don't know. It's really crass. It's just really, it's pure. It's so senseless. It's pure aggression. It's pure like senselessness. They're cackling the whole time. There's a bit near the end of the scene where they start like, I think Joe, the other like, you know, big burly, like minor looking guy, like fights a kangaroo hand to hand, which is like very mm-hmm. risky because kangaroos can kill the shit out of you. They can like disavow mm-hmm. you with their talons. Uh, but it's still, like, this incredibly senseless scene. And eventually, like, John ends up, like, killing an injured kangaroo and it's, like, considered, like, yay, you're initiated, you've been blooded. Um, I have mm. a I have a quote about the production of this scene, if you're happy for me to read it. Please do. Okay, uh, so this is from a 2010 article from SBS Insight by Peter Galvin on the a very long, very good series of articles about the making of Wake and Fright, and this is specifically about the kangaroo hunting scene. Quote, What I saw in the rushes was far worse than anything we put in the picture, remembers Buckley, Tony Buckley, the editor. In one take, a kangaroo was splattered in a particularly spectacular fashion. Watching this, Willoughby, on set to supervise as usual, fainted dead. Uh, He was one of the producers and production managers. According to camera operator Peter Hannon, the killing went on for hours. No. 
The stench, the blood, and the obvious light the Roo shooters had in their work started to wear down the filmmakers. Still, Kotcher felt the pro-hunters weren't exactly oblivious to the emotions being stirred up around them. Quote, They would say to me, Ted, we never look into the eyes of a kangaroo because if you look deep into the eyes of a roo, you'll never shoot one ever again. End quote. Oh my god. Yeah, so they're, they're admitting that like, yo, oh these... Oh my god. Kangaroos are really cute. I've, I've got a lovely video of my wife and daughter feeding one on our honeymoon in Tasmania. They're with a joey in its pouch. Like, they're cute. Oh my god. That's horrible, dude. Uh, I've, oh, it goes on. Sorry. It gets cold in the desert at night. The hunters start to hit the whiskey to warm themselves. Quote, by 2am the hunters were getting really drunk and they started to miss, end quote, says cinematographer Brian West. Wounded kangaroos were hopping around helplessly, uh, gore, skip ahead 30 seconds if you need to, trailing their intestines. Quote, it was becoming this orgy of killing and we, the crew, were getting sick of it, end quote. West had a private word with Tony Tegg, uh, one of the gaffers, who arranged a power failure. Quote, I told Ted that we didn't have enough light to continue, end quote. The crew headed back to Broken Hill, some of them fighting back tears. Oh, my god are you so okay so not only did the filming of this in what was supposed to be this like controlled way it's it sounds like an effort was made so that these kangaroos would be killed but then you're having it hammed up by the actors in a separate location sort of thing so not only did these roo shooters just fucking enact them that themselves they exceeded what the actors even showed in terms of glee yeah i wasn't aware of that like you know i saw the bit about like oh this was a controlled roo shoot and i'm just like oh okay okay that makes me feel a little bit better about it It Uh was something that needed to happen anyway but it's just like oh god damn okay roo shooters can be fucked up yeah yeah and also like you know i don't know if these guys were like hunting for food or pest control or anything like that like Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, or if they just knew how to use a fucking gun. Yeah, there's another section in that article where they mention like, "Hey, where do you want me to shoot them? If I shoot a root directly in the kidneys, they just fall down dead. If I shoot them in the heart, they like jump into the air. If I shoot them in the in the brain, they like you know kick around for a bit. Like you know they have like they were just like, hey, you know what rude deaths are you looking for here? Give us holy shit. Some, yeah, yeah. So so look, I yeah that may complicate my feelings of the scene. I still think it's a very powerful scene because i still think it has a lot to say about like masculinity in australia but uh yeah like i i i don't you know i'm grateful that cg exists now and we you know cg and prosthetics and we can we we don't have to you know accompany a live rue hunt as a filmmaker i don't know if i could go along with something like that oh my god i'm honestly like because, you know, as I mentioned, that scene did affect me. But, like, I think having context makes it worse. Holy fuck. Like, knowing they staged a power outage, man. Yeah. <laughs> to stop these fucking units from shooting kangaroos. Holy yeah. shit. If that doesn't sum up, like, the vibe of what they were trying to capture in the film, like, what the fuck? Yeah, and the fact that there's, like, outtakes there that were, like, too gruesome to put in the film at all. Because, like, the film is, like, you know, just usually kangaroos, like, flying into the air and, like, with blood on them. There's, like, nothing. There's, as far as I remember, no, like, gore. No. No, like, no intestines or anything like that. No. No, no intestines. But, but fucking Christ. Sorry, that's yeah, just so. like, that's a bummer, man. If, if you have more of the plot, because we haven't got to what I would argue is like the climax or like the reveal, as you say. What happens next is Wake and Fright's depiction of complicated uh, sexuality or homosexuality. They do the kangaroo hunt and John gets like kind of blooded and, you know, clearly kind of like a little bit fucked up by this scene. Uh, he goes home with Doctide and they keep shooting the gun. And then it's implied they fucked. Yeah, yeah. And Doc seems fine with it. (laughs) Yeah, Doc seems fine with it. And he's like sort of on top of him and then it cuts to black and you see like John presumably nude on the ground with like Doc Tyden who was just wearing a singlet kind of implied to have been on him. And the big implication is like, and I've read a few different sources to this. Um, some people have read Wake and Fright as like uh, John is closeted and this is like a violent awakening of his homosexuality. I don't know if I lean to that that much because it's really set up that he like idolizes, you know, has this like totem girlfriend at home in Sydney who is at the beach and is wearing this like weird cutaway swimsuit and, 
you know, they mm-hmm. drink beers on the beach and it's like very kind of sensual. And the one instance where like the texture of the film turns pleasant is this like fantasy he has of like him and his girlfriend at the beach where she's like all wet. So you get a sense of like how she feels. And that's clearly what he's going home for. So this scene kind of interrupts that with the implication that like, hey, John is, if John is drunk enough, he'll have sex with like Donald Pleasance. Yeah. And so that's something I haven't really thought about much because Doc's character, he kind of makes a few comments, especially in relation to the one woman in the movie, you know, about how they have sex and that they're adventurous. And he kind of, in a weird way, not in the most woke way, but like sticks up for this woman's like, I guess, promiscuity. It's just like, you know, who cares if everyone's agreeing to it? Like, he does seem a bit more liberal in his thinking. So that's sort of presented a bit. But yeah, I guess, you know, especially me being a queer person, I'm just like, oh yeah. And But obviously, John Grant is like, is obviously very shocked by it. I think, I don't have the reading that he's closeted. I think that maybe it was something he never thought he would do, just like how he probably thought he wouldn't be drinking constantly and wouldn't you know, get really into gambling. Like, I just think it was parts of himself that remained unexplored up until he was in the Yabba. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how deep it's supposed to be. I just, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a blind spot of mine, but I'm just like, yeah, obviously it was shocking to him. Yeah, I guess I just haven't really thought about that as much. I also, uh, just I quickly... Have... for. Oh, I have... I'm sorry, I have one more thing to add about, like, you know, masculinity and touch in the film, but uh, only if you if you want to quickly get out your point. You're... Oh, yeah, um, and just for reference for uh, listeners who might not know, like, the, the person who plays John Grant is a, a British actor who, I believe, at the time, he, he was openly gay in, like, the 60s and 70s onwards, obviously. Someone pointed out, like, I don't think that... I think it was so important that an outsider actor came into this setting and acted this because I don't know how a straight Australian man would have coped with this, like shooting this film. I think it would do some psychic damage because like, I don't know. Anyway, sorry, if you want to... Um... No, no, that's a great point. And also he uh, he dated Ian McKellen. Yes. Dated Gandalf. So get that Magneto bossy. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Go for it, man. But yeah, he's very handsome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so look, there's another point about um, you know that's a very intriguing point that yeah you couldn't get an Australian to do this role so like it had to be an English guy like kind of getting bloodied um oh, to detour quickly like man the Silent Hill movie is is fine I really enjoy it they had a motif in that movie where like the character is wearing a white outfit that gets steadily like redder with blood over the course of the film and I only just mm. realized on my second watching of wake and fright they kind of do that he's got this white suit that he wears the whole time that gets increasingly like more deranged as he goes on till like after the scene where like it's implied he had sex with doc titan he's wandering around the streets of the yabba like a zombie clutching a gun with his shirt open it's playing like eerie (laughs) synth music uh i didn't realize i may have been unconsciously channeling that when i picked the theme music for this podcast Ooh, maybe i was channeling gallipoli when i when i picked that i've never watched that Oh, okay, we'll go, we'll, yeah, the heap. There's another point in Wake and Fright about, like, uh, masculinity and touch and wanting contact and how you do that in such a, like, rigorously male-policed environment. And uh, Dick and Joe, midway through the kangaroo hunt, they go back to that bar and, like, wake the guy up by, like, throwing bottles everywhere. John Grant is falling asleep. Doc Tyden is, like, talking philosophy like a twat. And then Dick and Joe are, like, kind of having this play fight that very quickly, like, escalates into a real fight. Yeah, yes. Yes, as is tradition. Yeah, yeah. And they're just, like, dicking around, like, kind of throwing off with each other. And this could have come from, like, when Ted Kotcheff was doing, like, location scouting in Broken Hill in, like, the late 60s, early 70s. He encountered this because he was, like, you know, this, like, fruity Canadian guy, or you know, not from here. And he encountered, like, dudes saying, like, oh, come on, hit me, hit me. Mm-hmm. He was, like, man, back at home when people initiated fights, like, you know, he grew up in a roughish neighbourhood, People would just start, like, throwing fists. Uh, But these guys were just like, no, come on, come on, like, sticking their chins out. Like, it was like they wanted to be touched. Yes. Even even in violence. And that seems to be this weird thing you see in Australian masculinity is that it's, like, very physically brawly. And it's just like, man, if you can't have affection, like, you might as well just, like beat the shit out of each other it's it's deeply weird and something will probably come across in other media 
Oh, I'm I'm almost certain of it. And there's very much a thing where I I can't tell you exactly where I've seen this trope, but I definitely know I've seen it in media before. How it's like at least masculinity in Australia, there's this drunken camaraderie that on a dime can turn violent, but then you hash it out and then you're friends again. And it was this turbulent love hate, very physical and abusive interaction with between men that was really upsetting um and again like i think (laughs) there's a a comedian i think his name's chris fleming and he has this song he's a very camp guy from like massachusetts and he has this song called i'm afraid to talk to other men and it's like yeah i love chris fleming he's great (laughs) yeah yeah and like feelings that like that feeling of inadequacy and i know that my husband definitely connects to that just like trying to size each other up like uh what how what do i have to act like do i say do i say the right thing here and um so i think that he felt that uncomfortability for me having a father who very much was the type of masculinity that you see in the film including him being someone where you knew that he was like a very loud jovial drunk and then could flip into being very violent including with his mates like you know i remember he headbutted his best man out the front of our house one time and then also calmed down like 10 minutes later and they were fine like it is this really turbulent masculinity i think australian masculinities is probably going to be something that comes up again um in future i want to have a look at the movie kenny which explores another type of australian masculinity but in a bit of a different time and place but yeah the interesting point about his like suit becoming dirtier and dirtier and so it's sort of like the morning that he wakes up at doc's house after it's implied that they've had sex it seems like he's trying to find his way back to sydney Oh, sorry. I have one more thing to add about like yeah, yeah. that rough masculinity. Cause like I went to an all boys school and I remember so many of the dudes who were sort of like, you know, uh, my friends for a little bit in like year eight. And then who I like kind of start to like shake off as it got closer to the end of high school. Like, you know, they greet you by come up to coming up to you and punching you in the arm and trying to give you like the deadest arm possible. And you just be like, yes. Dude, what the fuck? Why are you doing this? Like yes. I was, I was just not into that at all. And like started to, you know, did my best to get out of those circles as soon as possible. And I do think things are overall better now, or maybe that's just what happens when you get a little bit older and everyone chills out a bit. But uh, yeah, I, don't I, know, man. I fortunately haven't encountered, or at least don't move in social circles where I have to deal with that anymore. But yeah, like your husband, sorry, I, I encountered that as well. I think the moment I tell people I'm a filmmaker, they're just like, oh, okay, you're, you're allowed to be an acceptable, like, court jester fruity motherfucker. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. As soon as um, like as soon as Robert, um, my husband, as soon as he's like, oh, I'm a physicist. It's like, oh, okay, big brain. I've read it. Okay, that's fine. You're a certain type of, yeah. I guess fruit, fruity, um, fruity tootie. I think Chris Fleming says. <laughs> Which, I say that not as me calling either of you that, but I can see that type of man thinking that. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And. In terms of masculinity, I think things are shifting, but I just want to, I think this is a good opportunity to like bring up, it belies like an undercurrent of like any form of affection, whether it be emotional or physical between men. I think, I think there's this like fear that you'll be perceived as being gay, which I think I'm almost certain at the time of filming probably was criminalized in a lot of states in australia certainly not socially acceptable um in most places i was working as a bartender up until recently and a few months ago had this guy come in who was very much this type of masculine this type of man and it was clear that he probably was asked to move on from like the the pub that was two k's up the road and he was just wandering until someone else would let him in and we let him in it was a quiet night and he asked for a uh rum and coke we asked if the house rum was okay and we showed him the bottle and the bottle our house rum is called mount gay it's a great rum it's really good (laughs) it's a fucking if that's your house rum that's good 
Yeah, like, it is objectively it's... better than Bundy rum, which is the go-to Australian rum. And we did have it, but it costs more and does not taste as good. And, you know, it's this rum from Barbados from memory, what, like the oldest rum distillery or one of the oldest in the world. And he's like, oh, dad, oh, don't drink that. I'll just have Bundy. And you're like, oh, no. Um, and he's like, oh, no. Nah. And I could tell it was from the name. Like, as soon as he read Mount Gay, I knew he didn't want to have it. And he kept saying, he kept making up excuses. First of all, he was like, oh, that's a spice drum, isn't it? I'm like, nope. <laughs> and um, Mate, We're not going to fucking tell on you. Like, God damn it. Like, well, that's it. And then he was like, oh, but, you know... It, it's a bit it's a bit stronger, isn't it? And I'm like, no, actually, it's the same amount or whatever. He ended up getting a Bundy and Coke first, and then the second one we ended up convincing him to try them out gay. And then he came back and he's like, Oh, that's bloody beautiful. And he ordered like oh two my God. more. And um <laughs> I mean, but okay. me and my boss, we were cackling because like we were like, Oh no, what if he rocks up to the next bar and is like, Oh, don't mind a bit of that gay shit? <laughs> like just like <laughs> Which is totally fine in any context, but like, just I, we felt like we had we had broken down a barrier. He clearly did not want to order this rum because it was called Mount Gay. God, like that's just... how homophobic, like, internalized homophobia, if nothing else, uh, just, how ingrained it is. Um, just, just living to... in a prison in his brain. Like... Yeah, he got to try a good rum for cheaper. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Wow. Anyway. That, that was just my little detour uh, that I feel like is a culmination of um, a recent experience of, of what I saw in Wake and Fright, but yeah. And and again, that shows how powerful this film is and that yeah, you absolutely, you know, see that. Like uh, all anyone drinks in this film is beer. It's kind of the only social acceptable thing. There's no craft beer. There is just like a generic brand of like a tap beer that looks like absolute dog shit. The beer looks so horrible. Oh, sorry. I wrote a note being like, she let the nozzle go into the beer. I was so mad. I'm like, that's a shit pour. <laughs> Just getting feral. <laughs> and also, I should quickly uh, add a really weird scene that I really want to talk about. Um, there's a scene at the start of the film where, like, uh, John Grant has met Jock Crawford, like, the weirdly intimidating but hospitable, like, manly man police captain and they're at an rsl and everyone's playing pokies and everyone's drinking beer and then just randomly out of nowhere i don't know if this happens at rsls like i haven't been to one in ages but um they just randomly start they turn off the lights they you know shine a light on like the the anzac sort of like shrine or something like that and they read out uh lest we forget uh Aye, and everyone weird. like yeah and that just that just happens in the moment where, like people are standing at the pokies and then the second it's finished it's like not quite a minute silence people just start going back to like sinking piss and you know playing the pokies so i don't know if you still go to rsls is that a thing yeah i i, I am curious to find that out i've never i don't think i've experienced that i was towed along to the bowls club the humble bowls club lawn bowls club so none of that sort of no honoring of our fallen at that place but yeah no i my only experience of rsls is my dad using me as a decoy to steal things out of the prize cabinet at the local rsl so rsl should we that's yeah, a, yeah, go, um, yeah go on to return to rsls sorry <laughs> return servicemen's leagues yeah yeah so it's just it's just a pub i guess that's like i don't know if they're not for profit but it's like i think like veterans can go there and chill out i don't really know I don't super understand them either, but yeah, I believe it's like they are put together by like veterans clubs and yeah, they are kind of like social clubs, they're bars, they are usually tied to like bowls clubs and things like that. Yeah, they do bingo, which is where the prize cabinet comes in. So my dad liked to steal from those. Um, and while he did so, he used me as a decoy for the security and basically I'd ask them where my dad is and they'd try and help me find him. So I wasn't clued in on the plan um, and I didn't realize what was happening, but we had always like the, the, the times that it happened, um, fucking come home. And there's all these like prizes that my dad got that I just assumed he had won. He wow. did not win them. Uh, they eventually caught on. But anyway, sorry, this is uh, Josie's... Just, little, just little Josie nuggets. Just little Josie <laughs> just corner. Just a little Josie corner. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm so happy you're you're you are prospering now. <laughs> Get the fucking odds of that happening. I could have ended up. Oh my god, that woman 
in that film, Wake and Fright, the one that we're talking about, I could have been her. Oh, God, having sex with, like, whatever weirdo shows up, like... (laughs) And being deeply unhappy in life. Oh, God, sorry, the character's name is Jeanette Hines. Sorry, she's uh, Al Hines's... Yeah, and she's very weird. She's she's pretty, but she's got this, like, perpetual frown on her face that just makes her look, like, deeply unhappy and deeply, like... I guess it's a look I see... I tend to see in a lot of older women and so I immediately you know plus the age of the film I sort of thought like oh she's old even though it's like no she was probably younger than me when this was shot like she's very yeah. pretty she's just like been told to act to like look as like unimpressed and despondent as possible because like wouldn't you fucking be yes exactly even her conversation with John Grant seems to be the most stimulating conversation she's had in a fucking long time yeah yeah and it's, it's like so depressing it's like meanwhile like they go off for a walk and it's like kind of understood like oh yeah we're gonna go off to like you know have sex in the bush but it's like you know fuck it why bother staying here they're all just like sitting here talking about like what dog they're gonna buy to take shooting like so then next in the film yeah he's trying to get back trying to finally get to sydney so yeah we have this beautifully eerie scene of him wandering through bandanya bar with a gun with his shirt open he finally gets all his goes back to the hotel to claim his bags and he starts like trying to hitchhike he lives off the land for a little bit he's like you know shooting rabbits and like cooking them over fires and eating them he hitchhikes and then in the the what i alluded to earlier the most horrific scene of the film he uses the gun to bribe a trucker to take him to the city and ends up right back at bandanya bar oh uh, that was the worst it's I felt like claustrophobic. There are so many scenes in this film. Like at the start, like I, I don't know if I have like a big thing about trying not to disappoint people, trying to like not ruin plans. I don't know if that's just a neurosis I have. When he sees his plane flying overhead going to Sydney, like I viscerally felt like horrified. And then yeah, well, he mm-hmm. ends up back at the Yabba after this like whole ordeal where he like nearly dies in the wilderness. I was just like, oh God, <laughs> he's like right back. I- the town it's itself just, is like a supernatural force drawing him back. It it does feel like that. I it is pretty crazy how the most spatially expansive place you could imagine is so feels so claustrophobic. All this open sky and yet you just have this feeling I need to get out, I need to get out. It's pretty fucking wild. One thing, sorry, I'll do I'll wrap this up in my closing thoughts. Progressing through the rest of the film, when he realizes he's back at the Yabba, he runs back to Doc Tyden's place, and it's unclear as to whether he's gonna try and shoot Doc Tyden. There is this wonderful hallucinatory scene, a frame of which is our banner image on uh, the Osgothic pod Twitter of Doc Tyden with the two two-up coins over his eyes, cackling. It's a wonderful reverse shot of him laughing and the coins kind of like fly up and cover his eyes while he cackles. Side with the heads is like scratched. During this sequence, uh, John turns the gun on himself and attempts to kill himself as Doc Tyden comes in. He fortunately survives. He is teased about this for being, he talks about like, oh, I want a silver medal for shooting. And it's just like, hey, you couldn't even shoot yourself in the head. Oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he is chided on this by Doc Tyden, who is, like, suddenly, like, well-dressed and is, like, seeing him out of the Yabba. He is, uh, he finally leaves the Yabba. He goes back to the little town where he teaches and presumably spends the rest of the holiday there. The innkeeper, who is an actor from Crocodile Dundee, I believe he's the barkeeper from Crocodile Dundee, has this, like, eerie look on his face as he comes back, almost as if to set up that this has happened before or that this could happen again. Ah, okay. He knows that look sort of thing. Yeah, that's like the final shot of the film, him with this like kind of the innkeeper runner of the hostel there with this like eerie look on his face. So like understanding it's just like, I know exactly what you did. (laughs) Yes. Also, John Grant, he also says that he had a great holiday. That's what he says. His holiday was great. And yeah, like unclear as to whether he is like lying or whether he's like, you know what? That was fun. Like being destitute for a bit and having like this... 48 hour day drinking like hellbender like so that was the other thing as well like this movie as i get older the more i assess my relationship with drinking i i hate day drinking i hate the afternoon and evening having to be like shit unless i have absolutely nothing to do unless it's like christmas and yeah uh (laughs) wake and fright is a great movie for making you not want to day drink yeah absolutely it's i won't lie the end scene does sort of 
like if you had to call it just on your own vibes do you think that John Grant was being earnest in saying that it was a good holiday I I honestly thought he was like he's he's trying to resume the mask of like oh I'm a proper British Ah. stuck up gentleman this is this is purely my reading i don't know but i get the feeling that he's got the shame and he's trying to pick up the mask and put it back on that like oh no no i'm a civil man i certainly didn't spend the night like killing an injured young kangaroo like oh that's interesting that didn't even occur to me i was just like no i think this dude actually like had the fucking time of his life but now i give it a second of more thought and i'm like no he literally tried to kill himself i probably probably your reading (laughs) see i don't know it could be it could be even you see i find your reading very intriguing as well so like i don't know like that's that's very cool and uh it ends with Again, lovely folk music that kind of reminded me of Wicker Man a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah like definitely, really... we- oh, fuck, definitely Wicker Man vibes in that, yeah. But this is, it, the more I watched this, the more I was just like, this is a little bit of Wicker Man. This is like this kind of snooty asshole going into these areas of people who are friendly but have like an air of menace to them and he ends up getting, you know, destroyed or consumed by them. So, I don't know, I, I reckon, fuck, if, Sleazoids, if you listen to this and have me on, I think they've already done Wake and Fright, but yo, uh, Wicker Man, Wake and Fright, double feature. It's that same air of menace, and that, like, horror, even though nothing supernatural is happening. Oh, and the Wicker Man, the original one, would have came out th- three years after this one. God, you're right, after yeah. After Wake and Fright. That's wild. But yeah, I guess similar vibes, and yeah, similar idea of an outsider coming in, and I guess in Wicker Man being unable to escape as well is like another but yeah but in your reading is like has he even escaped like has he just been like no no no, i'll do that again next year yeah and i mean i'm certainly someone who thinks that you know as soon as something's released into the world you can take whatever reading you want from it yeah like i'm not saying i'm right in this but sort of in my head i'm like he's this teacher and yeah prim and proper all that and then he had this like time where he was totally out of control (laughs) and it's like would he is this something he would do again because of all the rush like the rushes he got from it i don't know go back and move in with doc titan eat some kangaroo slop if that's what they want to do as long as they're not hurting anyone and maybe minimal (laughs) kangaroo harm more power to them but yeah so that was wake and fright i think it is a fantastic fantastic movie i would really recommend that by this point, people who are listening have gone and um, watched it. Yeah, I really liked it. I, I, I'm looking forward to watching more Australian cinema, honestly, because um, my experience of it is pretty limited. So one, one thing I take away from this film, and one thing that I want to see in more films, and maybe it's been done before, because my one criticism of movies like this is that I know they're examining Australian culture and like how like brutal and base it can be at points. But I know a lot of these movies make a big deal of, you know, particularly Australian Gothic movies, make a point of, like, making the Australian outback the Gothic castle of the setting, the, like, eerie, claustrophobic, supernatural setting. I do worry about that effect on the Australian people, like, people thinking, like, oh, this is an inhospitable wilderness, because there is something very beautiful about it. Oh, yeah. And I want to know if there's a movie that starts out like that, where it's like, oh, the wilderness is kind of bleak, but then it becomes, like, oh no, this is actually like quite a beautiful place once you sort of imagine yourself within it. Because I don't think that's something we've seen in a lot of Australian Ooh. films. or Unless it's like, ah, oh, we climbed a mountain and like, ah, oh, we, have, we have conquered the wilderness in a fairly traditional like right, Western lens. Yeah, yeah, it's still very colonial in its like ownership over the land rather than being part of it. Yeah, that's interesting because yeah, I think, oh, that's, a, that's fascinating. I would love to see that because... Yeah, as, as you were saying before, Lucas, yeah, people have been living here for thousands of years from memory in the book Dark Emu. What is known as Sturt's Desert, I believe it was Sturt's journal itself, he made note of the fact that there were townships of hundreds of people that he came across where they provided him with water because there were fucking wells in the desert. Mm-hmm. Maybe to, I know we have both American and Canadian listeners at the very least, maybe that seems obvious, but definitely in Australia, we were taught that indigenous peoples didn't even fucking have buildings. Yeah. Were simply nomadic hunter-gatherer. Obviously, First Nations peoples have always been saying, that's not true, that's not true. 
But um, this book, Dark Emu, written by Bruce Pascoe, was released a few years ago. He used not only Indigenous people's accounts, and he's Indigenous himself, he was also using primary sources from settlers to be like, no. <laughs> they built fish traps, if, if you, they built as... structures, like they were... Yeah, you just can't put a fucking Western... I'll get into this in our future prison design thing, but... We have this colonial history of just copy-pasting, trying to apply Euro concepts onto a landscape that was never supposed to have... That it just doesn't apply, if that kind of makes sense. Like, it, yeah. And that's where a lot of this tension comes from and a lot of this claustrophobia. And this, and the, you know, feeling disconnected from the landscape is also because, like, of the atrocities that were done in the name of founding the place... And, you know, mm-hmm. that understandable alienation from indigenous culture. And, you know, bringing over livestock that's totally shredded the landscape as well is, is also a part of it too. Cool! So, yeah, <laughs> any, any closing thoughts on Wake and Fright? Fantastic film. Again, just so disconcerting and menacing. I could see people of a certain generation watching this movie today and also being like that's not us that's not us deeply deeply knowing that it us it us (laughs) yeah yeah just to reinforce that like australians mostly hated the movie it was a box office flop it's only in recent years that's been reassessed it was a hit at Cannes. also like a flop received no marketing in america so that was partially why it was lost for so long but yeah in australia it was you know even though it kind of helped usher in the Australian new wave and like all these classic Australian films kind of probably owe a debt to it. It was largely lost and it was largely hated. And so, yeah, it's really cool that, you know, more and more people can see it now. I really hope um, any listeners who either have already watched it, feel free to like share your thoughts with us. We have a Discord server that we'd love to hear your thoughts on, but also anyone who has watch this film prompted by us i would really really love to hear your thoughts yes please yeah. please talk to us about it like we're sorry we made you watch hey hey it's saturday but please watch wake and fried it's it's legit good <laughs> no blackface no blackface um one inst a couple of instances of kind of like one direct instance of racism but then like a scene where like there's a lone indigenous passenger on a train while, while a bunch of like drunk guys are carousing and it's just like oh they invited the british guy to like drink with them but like the indigenous man is sitting by himself that's uh that's interesting to be fair probably safer not sitting with them yep not sitting with like the drunk dude seeing old gray mare she ain't what she used to be and being really fucking annoying yeah that's interesting yeah like a huge absence aboriginal people but also that's what settlers wanted especially at that time yeah. Just like nine, 1970s, still really fucking cooked policy. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you for having me on for another episode. I look forward to hearing feedback for this episode. This is the first. No, sorry. I lied. This is the second movie podcast episode I've ever done. Wow. Okay. The first one was on Cruising for a Reviews and where I, <laughs> I talked to the host, Kara, about Top Gun. Um, oh, beautiful. Bit of a different film. But yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is, yeah, once again, our first movie episode. Um, please let us know what you think. Josie, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, and thank you for listening to Australian Gothic. Bye. Hello, everyone. It's Lucas. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. We really hope you like it. Uh, please let us know if you enjoy movie episodes because it is something we'd like to talk more about. You can find us on Twitter at OzGothicPod. You can find Josie at JSSPCR1. You can find me at Luxus M with three M's. Uh, it's in the Australian Gothic Twitter profile, so probably just go there. We have a Discord now, link in the show notes. Uh, please join that and you can talk at us. Next week's episode, I am very excited about it. We are talking about the derangement that happens when you are an adult fan of the show Bluey. Very excited to tell you all about the miscarriage fan theory. Please join us next week. Thanks. Love you. Love you.